Well, I would also like to thank Greg for filling in. Um, you know, it's just, it's really good to be part of a, a church family where I can, as one of the elders, I could say, you know what, it's okay if one of us leaves because the other guy is able to uh, pick up some of the slack and some of the teaching slack. And so I just uh, appreciate Greg uh, filling in. And I, uh, last Sunday after... Uh, I had gone to church at my friend's church. I then turned on Facebook and watched a little bit of what was going on here. And uh, so I felt like I was with you, even though I wasn't really with you. So, but let's go ahead and let's uh, pray and then we'll spend some time in the text and um, yeah, have a lot of, a lot of things to, to talk about this morning. So let's, let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your work and your work upon our lives and how you have moved in our hearts. You have moved because of your spirit and through your son that we can worship you and love you. We ask that you would help us remove all of those distractions that uh, take us away from you and cause us to become distracted from the brilliance of your son, that we are no longer satisfied in him and what he's done, but we somehow become confident in what we do. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us with this temptation and that you would cause us to just glory in your Son, Christ, and glory in his person and his work. We thank you and love you in your Son's name. Amen. As believers, we talk a lot about temptations in life. And normally when we talk about temptations, we are talking about don't do that bad thing. We normally think of something that's evil and we're being drawn to that, that evilness. And that's true. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that that's wrong. Temptation is always attempting to try to get us to fulfill a desire outside of God's will, outside of God's timing. However, it is also true that there is another temptation that we don't talk about enough. It's the temptation of putting confidence in one's flesh, namely boasting in the good things we do, right? So we're always tempted from doing the bad thing, but sometimes we forget about talking about the temptation of what happens when we do a good thing. We, we put so much on ourselves. We put so much confidence on ourselves, it's really unfortunate that this is our struggle, and it's really unfortunate that this is a struggle that happens in the church, especially around times of the year like this one, you know, around Resurrection Sunday. It also happens around the time when we think of the Incarnation or Christmas. There seems to be this prevailing view from many Christians that all God requires is for me to show up twice, and I'm good. That's it. Or... All that God requires is that I show up and I say these magic words at the time when everybody else says these magic words. Or some of us who sit in the pew week in and week out, we look at some of these people who come in just on two weeks of the year and we go, what's up with that? I, I've been here this whole time. Look how righteous I am because I'm here every time the doors open. This time of the year seems like that temptation is more prevalent. And as we're 
talking about the resurrection, I, I wanted to think about this subject of how do we, how do we handle this temptation of putting too much confidence in ourselves? Because as we're going to see in the text, putting too much confidence in ourselves and the good things actually takes us away from Jesus Christ, devalues Jesus Christ in our mind, and is very easy for us to forget about the real reason of why we would have something like this, which is to remember the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, this morning, I'd like to spend our time in the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to attempt to cover verses 2 through 7. And in this section, I just want to point out three things. And what I really want to show is that it's really foolish for us to put confidence in the flesh because we didn't do a thing. Really, the only reason that I can do anything is because of God's work on my heart. So we're going to see in verse 2, it's because of God's work and who I am in Christ that I should watch out for false teachers who change the gospel. What we're going to see in verse 3 is that because of God and his work, I worship. I worship by the power of the Spirit, and the object of my worship is boasting in Christ. By consequence of that, it means I am therefore not putting any confidence in my flesh, any past accomplishment, any current accomplishment, or any future accomplishment. All of that is, it's all because of the Lord. And then lastly, it's because of God I can then consider. I can think of myself, I can think of my good deeds, I can think of my past in a a correct way. And as we're going to see the Apostle Paul in verse 7, he's going to say all of those things which somebody could say that is a spiritual gain, that's, that's spiritually rich, that, that's, a, that's a good thing spiritually. The Apostle Paul says, all of that I consider as being spiritually bankrupt. And then I love how Paul puts it in the Greek. The English doesn't convey it. I wish they did. It said, I consider it all lost because of Jesus. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So, let's go to verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3 and let's look at this first point that's because of God's work on my life and, and what he's doing inside, it, on the inside, on my spirit, on my inner man. It's because of that that I should be careful of false teachers. So notice in verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, and beware of the false circumcision. Now, we have to understand a little bit about the book of Philippians. And we have to understand a little bit of the, the context. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church. This church has some personality conflicts. You have these two ladies who are fighting. And so the Apostle Paul is, um, he is informing the church on how to, how to deal with this, how to have a right attitude in the midst of, of this, this uh, personality conflict. And the whole idea is, don't put so much on yourself, but glory in Christ. Think of Christ. The whole thing is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, right? It's, uh, have this attitude in yourself, which also is in Christ Jesus. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but those of of someone else. And then here in chapter 3, we're going to see later on, don't put so much on yourself. Don't put so much confidence in, in in your own flesh. It's because of what God is has done in your life. So that's the context. 
And one of the reasons why I picked this text for the Easter year or for this resurrection series is really because of verse 10. Verse 10 says, uh, the Apostle Paul shares that his desire is that he may know Christ and know the power of his resurrection. And friends, before we can get to verse 10 and knowing the power of the resurrection and knowing Christ, we have to go through these first verses and we have to do some, um, I don't know, some back work. There's some work that has to happen in our hearts before we can truly know Christ and truly understand what does it mean to experience resurrection power. What does that mean? And so the first part of this is beware of these false teachers, beware of the dogs. It is such a striking way that Paul puts it. In fact, there's nothing else in the text that really would indicate that there is a false teaching inside of the church of Philippi or that there would be any reason to warn of false teachers. But I think the Apostle Paul warns these people of false teachers because of what the false teachers do. The false teachers glory in their flesh and not in Christ. And the false teachers take you away from Christ. Also say this, there's a lot of discussion on who are these dogs and evil workers and false circumcision. I think these are Judaizers, and that's kind of how I'm going to interpret this. These are Judaizers. Remember, Judaizers are those who say, well, you need to believe in Jesus, one. Then you need to get circumcised, two. And then three, you need to follow the law, the Old Testament. That's, that's how you are pleasing to God. That's a, that's a life that's pleasing. So it adds in circumcision as a prerequisite for salvation. This is not talking about brothers and sisters we might have a disagreement with. This is talking about people who fundamentally change the gospel. Fundamentally talk and give different prerequisites for the gospel. So the gospel is that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and then rose again on the third day. And because of that, we are to place our faith in Christ, and then we have a right relationship with God based off of faith and off the person and work of Christ. These dogs, these evil workers, these mutilators, these are people who change the gospel. They add in prerequisites to the gospel, saying, you must do this and this and this. And so it's then for this reason, since they put confidence in the flesh, that the Apostle Paul says at the very beginning, beware. The Greek word here is blebete. Um, I just like saying that word, blebete. Literally means you all must look. I tried to incorporate that in my life this past week of just yelling out blebete whenever somebody's in danger. They don't understand it, so it doesn't do any good. But it's a fun word to say nonetheless. But he's saying watch out. Look out, be on, be on guard, and notice who they're supposed to be on guard for. It's Notice these false teachers, and Paul describes these false teachers as beware of the dogs. Now, I have a dog. His name is John Calvin. I love him dearly. We're also trying to get rid of him as well, but I love him dearly. He's a pet, right? He stays inside the house. We sneak him crumbs underneath the table. He enjoys jumping up on bed and sleeping between my wife and myself and taking up the entire bed. That little chihuahua is amazing. When he sleeps, he, can, he has the, the area mass of three linebackers from the Green Bay Packers. It's amazing. 
That's how we view dogs in the modern context. We love them. They're pets. In the ancient world, that is not how they viewed dogs. Dogs are not pets. Dogs do not belong inside. In fact, most dogs in the ancient world were wild dogs. Most dogs were like wolves and jackals and hyenas and coyotes. They're, they're predators. They're mean. They're vicious. They bark. They, they, they are not tamed. Uh, they're dangerous in packs. And if you get caught out in the street and, and a pack of wild dogs come, that could be incredibly dangerous for you. So when he says, beware of the dogs, he's saying, beware of these people that are vicious. Beware of these people that don't care. They, they only see you as an obstacle. They only see you as something that they can eat. Another interesting thing about this phrase dog is this was a term that was used by Jews in referring to pagans, and they would refer to pagans as dogs. It's derogatory. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul uses that language of they, uh, of, that they would say, oh, look at those dogs. They're not even worth our time. They're dogs. They're outside of, of, of us. They're not even saved. They don't know God. They would use that phrase in a derogatory term. And Paul takes their term and uses it against them. We're not the dogs. You are the dogs. We're not the vicious ones. You're the vicious ones. We're the ones who know God. You are the ones who do not know God. Now notice the second phrase that Paul says. He says, beware of false teachers. So notice, by the way, in verse 2, that beware is actually said three times. Um, The Apostle Paul is known for many things, but one of the things that is kind of unique in this particular verse is Paul says the same command three times, right? Beware of this, beware of this, beware of this. It's short, staccato. This is not normal rhetoric from the Apostle Paul. He normally doesn't repeat a lot of words like this. So so I say that to say, take notice. The Apostle Paul is serious about this. This is a serious threat. This is not some sort of menial threat. Uh, It's not like one of the editors came to the Apostle Paul and said, look, you got to write a letter to the church of Philippi. I need you to give me 600 words by Monday. Well, I only have 550. Put in some filler, man. I need 600 words. That's not what's happening here. To him, this is a serious problem. And notice what he says next. Beware of evil workers. Now, I thought this was kind of ironic, by the way, of thinking of what the false teachers taught. I'm not 100% sure any of us would say, look at that person. They are telling everyone to keep the Ten Commandments, evil sinners. That's not something we really would say, right? Normally we would say, well, if somebody's promoting the Ten Commandments to live according to the Ten Commandments, we would say that person's normally pretty moral, right? They're striving to be moral. Somebody saying you need to obey the Bible, that sounds pretty good. But to the Apostle Paul, you've got to understand, it's not, it's not that they say go back to the Bible. It's that they misinterpret the Bible. They try to achieve all of those things apart from Christ, and their message takes a person away from Jesus Christ. And it is for this reason that the work that they do is evil, because it takes them away from Jesus 
and the people who listen, it takes them away from the gospel that is found in Christ. It puts confidence not in Christ, but confidence in one's own ability to be righteous. That's what makes them evil. That's what makes them evil workers. Those who their livelihood is based off of wickedness. How true is this even in our own day that there are many people who are moralists, but they don't promote Jesus. I think the Apostle Paul was here. He would say they they would fall into the same category. We as believers glory in Christ, or at least we should attempt to, right? Now there's a third beware here. Notice the third beware. He says, beware of the false circumcision. Kind of an interesting translation. That's actually not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is mutilation. Uh, Refers to, uh, how do I put this delicately? A surgery mistake. A slip of the scalpel. It, this, is, this is talking about somebody who botches a surgery. And when you think about circumcision, you could say, yeah, that would be called a mutilation, right? And, and that's what Paul's saying. It, it's not a true circumcision. It, it's, a, it's a mutilation. It's a mutilation of God's will. It's a mutilation of God's, what he commands in the Old Testament. It's a mutilation of the people who believe it. And it really does nothing to commend you towards God. If you are circumcised, that does nothing to commend you towards God. And there are a host of things today that the church would say, well, you need to do this to commend yourself to God. Do this, and you'll get closer to God. Can I be honest? What more do you need if you have Jesus? Right? What more do you need? If you have the Word, what more do you need? If you have the Spirit, what more do you need? Are you suggesting that there's something that I can do that helps Jesus, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father out? Is that what we're suggesting? It's impossible. These people try to add in a ritual and a tradition and say, if you do this ritual and tradition, it brings you closer to God. That's what makes it a false gospel. Anytime someone says you can commend yourself to God by doing this, that's not the right answer. The right answer is always you commend yourself to God because God has already worked in your heart and because of Jesus who died on the cross for your your sins and he's working on you. It's because of Jesus that you can then have a way to God. These false teachers, the reason that the Apostle Paul is, is, is telling us to watch out for these false teachers is because they... They try to take our attention off of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. They, they change the gospel. Now, it is possible for you and I to listen to false teachers and for us to momentarily be uh, Twitter-pated with some of the things that they say. And it, our minds can, can absorb some of the stuff they say, and we kind of include it inside of our theology, but it's not right. And I think the Apostle Paul is trying to demonstrate to these people, look, it's all about Jesus. It's all about your relationship with the Lord, being in Christ. You don't need this other works to be right with God because you are already right with God. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for we are the true circumcision. 
He doesn't say, become the true circumcision. This already assumes that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the true circumcision. This is who you are. This is your position in Christ. You already made this. You don't have to become this. Isn't that incredible? I don't have to strive to do this. This is already something that's a product of God's work on my heart. So because of God, I can worship. So notice what he says. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship, I I translate this, by the Spirit of God. And we could say boast or glory in Christ Jesus, not putting any confidence in the flesh. So let's just take this first phrase. We are the true circumcision. I think the Apostle Paul here is trying to demonstrate not only to the Philippians, but if by chance there might even be a false teacher who would say, we're the true ones that are part of God's covenant people. I think the Apostle Paul is saying, actually, we're the covenant people. Now, let me tell you what I think this means here. Why I said, no, we're the covenant people. So we know that God has made a plan with Israel. God has made a covenant with Israel. And that covenant had a sign, and that sign was circumcision. Anytime somebody was circumcised, they were considered part of God's people. Now, we're the church. We're not Jews. God still has a plan for the Jews that will be fulfilled literally in the Jews. The church does not replace Israel. The promises made to Israel will be fulfilled in Israel. We have Christ. We are, we are now in the time of the Gentiles. But borrowing this image of the sign of the covenant, okay, that somebody has this sign and they're part of God's covenant people, I think the Apostle Paul is borrowing this metaphor saying, you think you're of the circumcision because you're circumcised. You think you're right with God. You, you are living right with God because you are circumcised and preaching circumcision. You are wrong. We now come to God on the basis of Christ. And if anyone is right with God and part of God's people, it's those who are in Christ in the church right now. This doesn't negate God's future promise that he made to Israel that will literally be fulfilled. So I think the Apostle Paul is saying, we're God's people. The church is God's people. Those who are in Christ are his people. It's interesting in other places, the times that circumcision is used for the church. And when it's used for the church, it speaks of a a heart that has a removal of hard flesh. Circumcision is also a sign of those who are obedient to God. And we are circumcised spiritually. Not with human hands, but our heart is circumcised. And our hearts are circumcised, which means that we have this soft heart that is willing to obey. Now the question is, how do we get there? Well, notice the next phrase. Who, speaking of us, those who are in Christ, who worship by the Spirit of God. Now this word for worship is also another interesting word. There's three words in the Greek New Testament that speak of worship, okay? So you have one, which speaks of of bowing down and of adoration. You have one, which is like the fear of God, of keeping rules and regulations. And then you have this other one that refers to serving God. And that word was actually used in the Septuagint 
in reference to the priests and the priestly duty when they would go to the temple and they would serve the Lord by doing these things. What's interesting is that's the word that Paul uses here. He uses that word that's not dealing with the adoration or the fear of the Lord, but it's dealing with the one of service, the one that was used in the Old Testament of the priests and the priestly duties. So think of this. You have these people who are saying, you need to follow the law in order to be right with God. And the Apostle Paul is taking their language against them, saying, no, you're not right with God. And if anyone's right with God, it's us. We're the ones who are actually truly circumcised of the heart. You're not. You think you're doing a service to God by keeping all these rituals. You're not. That's done away with in Christ. We are the ones who are serving God. We are the ones who are dedicated to worship. Now, notice how he says this. We are worshiping. The New American Standard says in. That's a literal translation. It's the, it's the Greek preposition en. And, and I take this as, as by agency of. That, that, that preposition could be translated as an agency of. So I worship by agency or by, empowered by, enabled by, influenced by the Spirit of God. So when we talk about worship as believers, what sets apart the worship of believers and non-believers? The Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit. And because we have the Spirit, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Because we have the Spirit, there's this God's working on our heart, making us more like Christ. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is molding our will so that it looks like his will. Our desires are now radically like his. They're, they're, they're different from than when, before we were a believer. The desire to worship, the desire to love, the desire to be obedient, the desire to serve is now there because the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts. That's what I think he means when he says worship by the Holy Spirit. This is the distinguishing mark of a believer and a non-believer. So it's possible for someone to walk into a church, sing the same, two people walk in, sing the same songs, read the same translations, sign the same doctrinal statement, say amen at the same parts of sermons, by the same books, and one worshiping by the Spirit and the other one not. Which one would be the believer? The one that's worshiping by the Spirit. The one who's influenced and empowered by the Spirit. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? This is something that happens. Now, you might not be conscious of this happening, but this is something that's happening in you. When you worship, you're worshiping by the Spirit. Now, you might not be as yielding to the Spirit as God would like, but it's still there, and you're still worshiping by the Spirit. This is who we are. This is part of what God is doing in our life. That's incredible. But then notice this next thing that a, that a believer does. Those who are part of the true circumcision, those who are in Christ. Now, we might not do this as much as we should. I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying we're absolutely perfect in this. But relatively speaking, this is what a believer does. This is the expectation of a believer, and this is stuff that we do. Notice what he says, and glory in Christ. Literally, boast in Christ. So what does a believer do? I boast in Christ. Why do I boast in Christ? 
because of God's work in my life. I'm reminded of that passage in 1 Corinthians. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As the Apostle Paul is talking to this dear church, he is helping them in their worship service. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is, that, is, is a discussion of how one's supposed to use their spiritual gifts inside of a church service. And the reason they needed to know this was because they were not using the spiritual gifts correctly. And just start in verse 1, notice what he says. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Meaning that before you were a believer in Christ, there was like this invisible hand that led you around. You were led. You were led to him. You were led by him. They influenced you, right? Notice verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that this means that it's incapable of a non-believer to utter the sounds, Jesus is Lord. There are some who believe that, and that is ludicrous. That is not what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is that affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ, that affirmation of the truths about who Jesus is, that he's fully God and fully human. It's that affirmation that I need to follow him and believe him. It's that affirmation of the gospel So no one can affirm the gospel, can affirm the deity of Christ. No one can affirm those truths about Christ except by the work of the Spirit. So think about this. What is worship? Worship is saying the truth about God. What is praising? Saying the truth about God. The only way that you and I can truly say the truth about God is because of the Holy Spirit. So my worship is a product of God, is a product of his work. Now, if we go back to Philippians chapter 3, notice in verse 3, this last part, and it says, and puts no confidence in the flesh. There's a couple ways of taking this. One, this is true that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is putting their faith in Christ and confidence in Christ to save them. That is true. There is, there is nothing that they're saying, yeah, it's mostly Jesus, but I had to help him out a little bit, and so I had to do A, B, C, D. No. A true believer says, it's all Jesus. I'm trusting in him and in him alone. I'm putting all of my eggs in that basket. That is it. Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else. Nothing I can do. Nothing my church can do. It is Jesus and his work. I would also say this, that most believers that I've, I've met with and talked with and have fellowshiped with have this idea, whether, whether they articulate it correctly or not, whether they live it out perfectly or not, they do have this idea that the only reason that there's anything good in my life is because of the work of the Lord. The Lord's working on my heart. And you say, well, I, there's some people when I talk to them, they don't say that. But if you listen to them pray and they talk to the Lord, what, what are they constantly saying? They're saying, will you please work in my life? Will you work in the life of someone else? Will you work 
there? Will you work here? In their prayer life, they demonstrate that they believe that the only way that anything can happen is that God's working. It's not, they're not saying, God, this is what I'm going to do. They're saying, help me, work with me, work in me. So a true believer does not put confidence in the flesh. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't be tempted to put confidence in the flesh. That doesn't mean that we're absolutely perfect. Because let's be honest, I put a lot of confidence in the flesh throughout the week, right? I mean, this is one of my big struggles. I think I'm awesome, right? I think I'm righteous. I mean, I I look at my spiritual resume and I go, ain't too bad. You did some good stuff there, right? I mean, that's an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing to do saying, look at what I just said. I just said something and someone said amen. That's easy, right? It's easy. It's easy to put confidence in the flesh. We do this, okay? We do it. What I think Paul's talking about here is that there's this base understanding of the believer. It's not me. It's the Lord's work in my heart. I think that's what he's saying. And I think that's true. And I think as believers, we always can say, I can, I can understand that and live out that reality more. But as a basic understanding, I understand it's the Lord's work. Because of the Lord, I worship. Because of the Lord, I'm in Christ. Because of the Lord, I'm here. So it's because of him. Now, the Apostle Paul now takes a dogleg turn, I think, in the argument. And I think, as I said before, I think the argument that he's, he's crafting here is to help this church with these ladies who are having a fight. And it's, it appears by what the Apostle Paul writes about these two ladies that the fight dealt with personality conflicts of two very uh, two people that were very confident in their flesh. We'll put it that way. And that seemed to be the source of the fight. And so the Apostle Paul seems to be arguing against this putting confidence in one's flesh and glorying in Christ. And unity in the church is when we stop putting confidence in our own flesh, stop tooting our own horn, and all saying it's all about Jesus and boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in saying this, verse 4 to verse 5 and verse 6, I think the Apostle Paul is doing something really interesting here. I think he's saying, because he knows people, he says, okay, there might be someone that would say, for the most part, Christians should put confidence in Christ. But I'm a special. I'm special. <laughs> I'm not like most Christians. Right? I'm a little bit special. And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is, is saying, look, even if you think, if, even if there's an inkling that you might have a spiritual resume that looks really good, I dare you to put it up next to mine because it's not going to look as good as mine. My spiritual resume was awesome. But you got to realize that I do not put any stock in that. So if mine is better than yours and I think mine doesn't, doesn't amount to anything, then that means that yours definitely does not amount to anything. I think that's his argument here. So notice what he says in verse 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. By the way, I don't, I don't, think, he's, I don't think this is some sort of like rhetoric posturing. I, I think if we would have met the Apostle Paul before his conversion, we would have said, that is 
a Jew out of Jews. He is the poster boy of Judaism. And I think if we were to look at this resume and we would have known the Apostle Paul, we would have said, yeah, no, that's actually a fair description of you before Christ. So he says, if anyone might be able to put confidence in the flesh, let's say that it was possible. If someone, if someone could, he said, I, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, I exceed them. If they think they can put confidence in the flesh, I definitely, the Apostle Paul, I definitely could, and mine is better than theirs. My spiritual resume is better than theirs. So the question is, what's this resume? Interesting, verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He's better than the Judaizers, right? The Judaizers are probably filled with half Jews and half uh, Gentile proselytes. They were circumcised later, not the Apostle Paul. He grew up in an Orthodox family that took the law seriously. And in taking the law seriously for a young Jew, you have to be circumcised on the eighth day. Every male circumcised on the eighth day. You know what's amazing to me as I go through the Old Testament? How many times the Jews forgot to circumcise their kids? Like, for example, I was reading through Joshua, getting ready for tonight, and it said, and they had to stop and circumcise everybody because in the wilderness they didn't circumcise their kids. It was like, you guys just got that law. Not Paul. Paul lived in a devout family. Then notice what it says next, of the nation of Israel. He's not a half-breed. He's a thoroughbred. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, in, in, in Paul's day, there were two tribes to be a part of that were the cream of the crop. If you were from these tribes, you were considered upper crusty. And these two tribes were the tribes that were the most faithful out of the 12 tribes. These two tribes were the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the good one. And then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, literally a Hebrew out of all Hebrews. Uh, it could have been, uh, I was a, a better Hebrew than the Hebrews. Or I, I think probably a better, a better phrase would be, for the sense, a poster boy of Judaism. As to the law, what does he say? I was a Pharisee. Now, this might not mean much to us at this time, but back in the day, if somebody said, I was a, I'm a card-carrying member Pharisee, that meant something. That meant that he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism. This man was orthodox. This man took it serious. These were the serious scholars. These were the serious observers. Verse 6, as to zeal, you want to talk about my zeal for what I believed? A persecutor of the church. Think about it. How How dedicated to a faith do you have to be to go out and kill other people and persecute other people who believe different than you? That's hardcore, right? I mean, we're talking hardcore believer. Then notice what he says next. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Now, I don't think Paul's saying I was sinless. Rather, what I think he was saying was, if you were to look horizontally... And you were to look at all of the Jews, and as they attempted to follow the law, none of them could have looked at me and said, Ah, Paul, you forgot about that one. Nope, he did it all. He did it all. He was never caught in a major scandal. 
He was a moral person. And people, as they looked at him, they would have said, he is a moral person. And let's be honest. If it was on the basis of works that someone could commend themselves to God, this is the type of resume that would commend someone to God if it were possible. But notice what the Apostle Paul says, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, the word here gain is a financial term. It means that which is of advantage, that which brings a profit, that which is of good value, it's a good deal. Those things that were those things, they used to be gain, they used to be spiritually rich, they used to be full of spiritual treasure. And he says, I looked at those things and I would point to my resume and say, I'm right before the Lord. Those things, whatever those things were, those things I have counted as loss. The word here for loss is bankrupt. It's another financial term. It means bankrupt. It means debt. It means that which is a, not a good deal, right? Something which, uh, which actually causes you to spend more money. You get no profit. So those things, which, which one might say, that's a great spiritual resume to give before the Lord. He says, all of those things... I now think of them as being spiritually bankrupt. What changed Paul's mind? What caused him to think this way? Love the next phrase. New American Standard says, for the sake of Christ. That, that's essentially what it is. I just like the literal. The literal is because Jesus. Why does he consider these things loss? Because Jesus. Because Jesus radically changed Paul. And, and Paul now has confidence in Christ. Why does he need that old resume? He doesn't need it. He's got Jesus. And as we'll find out next week, as we deal with this passage next week, and like I said, next week I really want to try to focus in on verse 10. So if you're reading ahead, we're going to spend some time in verse 10. And, and really that subject where Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what I want to talk about next week. But we have to get through this stuff first. And, and as we're going to see next week, in verse 8 and 9, Paul sees his old resume not as a help to get him closer to God, but as the very thing that was keeping him away from Christ. This stuff that some say, that's great, actually prohibited the apostle Paul from going to Jesus because he had so much confidence in his own flesh. So it has to be the work of God to show that stuff you put confidence in is not worth anything. Every time I think of this subject, uh, I can't help but think about that one story about the one uh, explorer who came over to the New World and he was looking around on the ground and he saw a shiny rock and he thought, that looks like gold. Probably should dig it all up and bring it back to England. Gets back to England and everybody goes, that's not gold. But man, it looks like gold. And he goes, well, where there's gold that looks like gold, there's probably real gold. Goes back, brings back another shipload of what we now call fool's gold. And I can't help but think of that as an illustration here of the Apostle Paul loading up his ship of all this stuff that he thinks is gold. 
only to get back to England and realize this stuff is worthless. This is worthless. Not only is it worthless, I put myself in danger, other people in danger. I now owe people money. I'm losing money. This, this, is a, this is bad. Anytime we put confidence in the flesh, it's like collecting fool's gold, but telling ourselves it's gold. For us as believers, we want to get to the real stuff, the real nuggets, the stuff of real value. What's the stuff of real value? Jesus. Knowing Jesus. All that other stuff, who cares? Who cares? We have Jesus. We have the word. We have the spirit working on our heart. Why do I need that other stuff? I have him. And so this is why then the apostle Paul will later say, oh, my desire is that I may know him. That's what I want to do. I want to know him. And I want to know what it's like to live in the power of the resurrection. I I want to have the same fellowship of his suffering. I want to be like Jesus. So this then echoes the statement that he made in chapter 1. In closing, go with me to chapter 1. Notice what he says in verse 21. For to me, life itself is Jesus, is Christ. And to die is gain. To the Apostle Paul, it's all about Jesus. So as we go into this week, this Passion Week, I'm sure that we're all going to have friends that are going to be going to a lot of different services, doing a lot of different things. I imagine there might even be some of them that think of you as being somewhat of a lesser Christian because you're not going to church on Thursday night or Friday and thinking, well, you don't really understand Jesus and how we're supposed to relate to Jesus And I I do not want you to be ashamed of who you are in Christ. And I want you to know, you are in Christ Jesus right now. You are in him. You have been given his righteousness. You, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know him. You're not some second-class citizen. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who worships by the Spirit who boasts in Jesus Christ and puts no confidence whatsoever in any ritual. And your desire is that I may know Christ, that I want to live in that power of that resurrection. For me to live is Christ. And to die, I get to go to heaven. That's great. But for me, life itself is defined by Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Uh, Let's go ahead and let's...